I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we lunge into the pages of a book and form the most pristine buns, aka opinions, with what we learn. And I'll tell you what, if you want a more robust workout that isn't on VHS, then maybe find it yourself, okay? But if you want to know our thoughts on a memoir, then here we are. Here we are, back at it again, damn Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) We took some time, we rested, we recovered, we found ourselves again, much like Jane. Yeah, a third act, if you will. I am so excited to be back. I am so happy to be back. I missed you guys so much. I don't know if everything's changed. We took a whole week off, and I have to say, thank God we did, because this was a very long book, and I think if I had not taken a week off and come to it with my former bitterness of two weeks ago, it would have been a tougher slog than it was. Before we get into this week's episode, we have more Tour dates to announce. First of all, Toronto, shout out to you guys. The best there ever was. Sold us out in literally 12 hours. So we had to come back and hit him with the second pair of white sneakers. Is that what he's doing? Back at it again. I'm sorry. I can't get damn Danielle out of my head. We are adding a second show to Toronto. It is going to be the Wednesday night beforehand. The tickets are linked in the show notes. We'll post it on our Instagrams. We also are adding a show in Chicago. A second show in Chicago because that is now sold out as well. I'm so excited. I told my mom she couldn't invite any of her friends to the first show. So if you are one of my mom's friends, I'm excited to see you at the second show. And also if you're someone who didn't get tickets to the first show, baby, come on down. And we have added a show. Our secret November 14th show is going to be in Denver. So thank you guys. We're so excited to see you. Denver, hop on board. I think DC is almost sold out. Philly, as per last time, you guys are really like taking your time, which I respect about you guys as a city. I think you're kind of a city that's too cool for school. The city of brotherly lounging. I will say last time we came to Philly, there were like 100 people who DM'd us the day of and were like, wait, I really want to get tickets. And I was like, well, you did have three months. And we are coming to Atlanta. We are coming to Nashville. We are coming to San Francisco. I am very excited. We're already planning shows for next January. So if your city is not on the list yet, we're coming soon. We'll figure it out. We're doing our best. We love you guys so much. We cannot wait to see you. Yeah. Ugliest Girl in the World Attack sweatshirts are in stock. We don't have that many left. We did a limited run on this because I was not so sure how many people would want to wear clothes that call them ugly, but they're not calling you ugly. They're saying it's an attack. Yeah, I like it because it feels very Wicked Witch of the West, like sending the ghouls on you. And I'm like, don't fuck with me. I know some ugly bitches and they'll hit you. (laughs) And they're me. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were a memoir and that was a chapter, what's last week called? Okay, so this isn't exactly new if you've been following me on Instagram, but we have not recorded since my hair turned red. Last time we did a podcast, I was a brunette person and I don't even remember her. And I do feel like this is an entire new era of my life. I feel like a late in life redhead. I'm like, this is the color my hair was supposed to be all along. I feel like changing my hair color has done something different to my entire psyche. It's not like when I get a keratin treatment or like, You just feel kind of nice that day. So you put yourself out there, like go out more. I feel so excited to be in the world because I'm just like a new person who is excited to be present because I feel good about myself. Like I feel pretty and cool. Oh my God, that's great. Just in time for a summer. Exactly. That's the perfect time to feel pretty and cool is when everything fun is happening in the world. 
And I know that it might line up with the fact that it has just become summer and so fun and cool things are happening. But I feel like, honestly, I've had fewer ugliest girl in the world attacks than average because I feel like my hair distracts me from the rest of my entire self. So I'm like, I don't know, my face might look a goddamn mess, but who's even noticing it because I have cool red hair. Oh my gosh. And by the time this episode comes out, you will have had a birthday. And I feel like sometimes a birthday hits you. Sometimes a birthday hits me. I have really determined that I need to feel good in my body on my birthday. Otherwise, I have a full-on meltdown. And so I usually don't like drink the week before my birthday and stuff like that. And we will see how this all goes because I do have a bachelorette party this weekend. Actually, this episode airs on my birthday. Oh my God. Have you guys said happy birthday to Ashley yet? You know what? Don't wish me happy birthday. Buy a ticket to hang out with us. That's the best gift a gal could ask for. Anyway, so this is my red-haired era. Claire, if you were to write a book about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? I feel renewed. I feel like all things are coming together. I feel back and better than ever. I feel healthier than ever. Sometimes you forget that a week is a long-ass time. If you go on just a little staycation, you're going to come back feeling so amazing. The book we read this week, I couldn't recommend a better book for making you feel young. Yeah. I literally am like, I'm just 30. I'm a baby. You have two eras left. I know. And I'm just like really, I'm excited for the summer. I feel like we are officially in not crunch time for the wedding, but it's becoming real. I'm like, oh my God, soon there'll be a wedding. I'm feeling settled where I live. I'm throwing parties. I'm having fun. This is going to be such a fun summer. And then honestly, I think like next summer is going to be a really fun summer. I feel like I'm going to have a great summer and this is even the most fun summer out of the next two summers. I think next summer is going to be like I have no responsibilities. Nothing's on the horizon. We're just farting around and hanging out. I can't wait for next summer. If you guys are at home feeling anxiety about having this be the best time of your life, I almost already think it's not. (laughs) I think next summer is the best summer of all of our lives, which takes the pressure off this summer. So this could just be a great fucking summer, but it doesn't have to be the best one. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a great way to go into Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) Let's start June by writing off the whole next three months. Speaking of what is time but a lesson to be learned, should we get into this week's memoirs? This week's memoirs, we had left specifically for a post-vacation episode return because, God, has she lived in a lot of life. It's called Jane Fonda, My Life So Far. And let me tell you, don't write another one, Jane. This was enough life as it was. This book is a hefty tome. At page 400, I was like, it's 1982. (laughs) She spares no detail. I will say, I think there is like a certain style of writing that is representative of this era of celebrity that we've seen a lot, which is long. The the style is long. I feel like I have a couple of insightful things to say about the style of this memoir. I feel that, interestingly enough, this memoir was written in the style of authorized biography. Yes. And I say that because a memoir feels personal. Even you look at like a Cicely Tyson, it felt deeply personal. And she gave you some backstory on her parents because, of course, like our parents' story is so important to our story, yada, yada, yada. But it was her memories, her experiences, her perspectives. Jane Fonda, I feel, is somebody who attacks all areas of interest in her life with like the force of a thousand suns. And so when she was going to write about herself, she's like, it's important that we understand everything around us. And so she is bringing in not just her life, not just her parents' life, but like her boyfriend's parents' lives and her great uncle's life and psychologists say, and the doctors know, and the history of the Vietnam War and what you have to understand about Putin is 700 years ago, the Russian czar. Like, 
There is a lot of extra material. And so I will say this is an interesting book because it's 600 pages of dense, dense, dense reading. But her life story, which is a lot, she has lived a lot of eras, a lot of lives. Every decade was a fresh, new, interesting thing. But it's even more than that. She really sees her life as like part of this quilt. Yeah, I guess I agree that she sees it as part of a quilt. But to me, it felt almost like a certain level of insecurity still where in order to present an idea that she has, she needs you to understand the very first seed that it grew from and not because it's integral to the story, but because she like needs you to see that her perspective comes from a place and isn't just like random. She's not some frivolous actress who's like screaming about war. And I think that a lot of her thoughts and ideas have been critiqued so heavily and she's like been so afraid to say them for so long. She talks a lot throughout this book of being deeply insecure of being in marriages where she is like very afraid of sharing her own opinion, of talking about who she is, about her soul. I think she's still on the stage of really sharing her beliefs where she needs to caveat every single word that she's ever said. Yeah. And I also think it comes from like she wants this book to help other women. And I think one of the central tenets of her life is I'm here to help people to get around like, well, how is a memoir not just self-serving? She is desperate to show how her life story, sharing it could help you. And I think to do that, she has to like couch it in this is the universal story of mothers and fathers and daughters and addiction and being a woman and stuff. And so she pulls in a lot of external sources to like tie her personal story back to what is relatable and what has been studied by psychologists and what has been seen in history so that then you can see how like her mistakes are something you can learn from. And in some ways... I think it makes it very hard to read. But in other ways, I think that if there were someone else reading this who wasn't quite as leftist as us, someone who doesn't have the beliefs that we have, I think watching her thought process evolve in such a detailed way would actually be very helpful. I found it helpful for all of it. I think to have a woman who has like two Oscars, who's been like outspoken politically her whole life, who presumably has done it all, you know, to this day. She's like making movies. She had a fitness empire. I mean, she's had so many different parts of her life. She's written Oscar-winning movies. She's like traveled the world. She was studied by the FBI. To then have her be like, and here's the ways I was still insecure and here's the ways I was still like so ashamed of myself and couldn't speak up for myself. I don't think it's like even just a political leftist thing. I think it's helpful for any woman who's ever been forced to feel small. I also thought to the biography part, what I found very interesting is she interviews people in her life. She seems to have interviewed people in her life in the way that like only an outsider would. Like I think she sat her children down and was like, And what was it like having Jane Fonda as a mother? And did that hurt you? (laughs) Like, do you know what I mean? She quotes the things they said about her and she's like, And I did send them to camp and they said of this being a very pivotal moment in their life that X, Y, Z. And I feel like the way that these quotes happen, feel like they came from a conversation that is not a conversation that you would have with somebody you know. It's a conversation being had by somebody who studied you. And it's like putting you in context historically. Yeah. And part of me thinks that she doesn't even just do this for the book. I think that this is a practice she's done in her life where it seems like she's always looking to like re-examine and learn more about herself and to grow as a person. Yeah, I agree. I think she's happy to say, well, what's this been like for you? We'll get in 60 people who've experienced this and ask them. And so when it's like, what's it like to be Jane Fonda? Let's call in 60 people that I've intimately known and ask them. Jane Fonda was born December 21st, 1937. This book came out in 2005, which is crazy because she's like, well, I'm at my last act. It ends with her being like, I'm ready to just be a grandma. And I'm like, I think you put out four movies last week, Jane, with all your BFFs. You don't even know about Gracie and Frankie yet or whatever. Yeah. You don't even know about 80 for Brady. 
So she starts this book essentially outlining the three sections. We have Act 1, Gathering, Act 2, Seeking, and Act 3, Beginning. Act 3 is very short because she's still at the very beginning of beginning, but it's about the way she grew into who she was, and then she sought out the world, and then she applied those things back to herself, and now she's just beginning again. So Jane Fonda is a top-tier Nepo baby. Her dad was Henry Fonda, notorious smoke show, and also complicated guy. If you're wondering, what does Henry Fonda look like? Google him. You're welcome. I was going to say just think about what Jane Fonda looked like, but man. And hot. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's a good looking man. So the book starts, she's 11 years old living in Connecticut while her dad is starring on Broadway. And she talks about how quiet and repressed her upbringing was. She has a younger brother named Peter, and they live in a house where they barely speak to their mother. Their mother is always unwell and in hospitals. They're raised by their very stern and cold grandmother and nannies. And she just has these memories of loving Connecticut because there was a horse she could ride and there was a lot of grounds for her to play in. But in the home, it was dead quiet. She did not like her mother. She felt her mother did not like her. And she was obsessed with her dad, who was barely there. I now realize I must have sensed that something was very wrong between my parents. Palpable tension was in the air. Dad's anger and black moods, mother's increasing absences. Even if I had the words to express what I knew, I'd already learned that no one would listen to the words I spoke about my feelings. So instead, my body was sending out distress signals. So she like broke bones very often when she was young and honestly throughout her life. She feels like her body is constantly like speaking out before she can. She really related to her father and wanted to do whatever it took to get her father's love. And she sensed from him that emotions are weak. And also there was such a tension between her parents and she did not want to relate to her mother. So it was really important to her to like be almost boyish and cold and follow her father. She also said her mother was ill all the time. Look at this, she said, showing me one of her breasts. The nipple was all distorted. I felt so bad for her, but I also didn't want to be her daughter. I wanted to wake up and discover I was adopted. I wanted a mother who looked healthy and beautiful, at whom a father would want to look when she had no clothes on. Maybe then he'd want to stay home. This was all her fault. So she internalizes a lot of body image issues that happen around her and then later happen at her. Her dad is pretty judgmental. And when he's not being judgmental, he is absent. Like he pops up just to kind of say something mean and then leave again. Like I said, they are living in Greenwich, Connecticut because he's on Broadway. For those of you that know, lots of people commute from Greenwich to work in New York City. And he does not commute. He stays in the city and rarely comes home. When she was 11, the father wants a divorce. He comes home and tells her. And then he says in his own biography, In retrospect, Fonda says, I've got to tell you, she was absolutely wonderful. She accepted it. She was sympathetic. She couldn't have been more understanding. Yeah, sure. Mother was acting by all the rules. If she could love the right way, selflessly, with understanding and no anger, perhaps dad would come back to her. In private, though, she was disintegrating. She hacked off her hair with scissors and, while staying in a friend's New York apartment, walked the neighborhood in her nightgown. So her mom starts kind of going crazy, and they live on nothing. She's scared she's going to get no money in the divorce. They just sit at home quietly and nobody ever discusses it. She doesn't even know that they're getting divorced until, I guess, because Henry was famous. One day on her way to school, her mom goes, if anybody at school says that your parents are getting divorced, tell them you already knew. And it was never discussed again. So her mom spends more and more time in and out of mental hospitals. And one day she comes home from a hospital like with a chaperone and calls the kids down to see her. Jane refuses to go and talk to her. And her mom killed herself shortly after that. So she never saw her mother again. When she comes home from school that day, they tell her that her mom had a heart attack and died. 
she finds out 10 months later in school from an article written about their family that in fact her mom had killed herself with a switchblade that she had stolen on that trip home. Like on the visit to go see the kids, she had smuggled it back. Never in all the subsequent years, all the way down to his own death, did dad and I ever mention mother. I was afraid it would upset him. I was sure he felt guilty because he'd asked for the divorce. Make it better. I don't even know if he knew that I knew the heart attack story wasn't true. Don't ask, don't tell. Surely he knows by now. So then she kind of gets into her family's background. We do not have time in this 600-page book <laughs> to get into every single person's life story. It is interesting, though. It is interesting, though. And I do think that this is like an interesting book to read at your leisure. And I think you can kind of pick it up and put it down. And each story and each section is interesting on its own merit. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that the problem with this book is that it is very long and dense, but there are chunks that yank you in. And then as soon as those chunks end, it like spits you far out. So I think reading this book with no timeline would be a really good way to read it because when I hit those breaks, it was like hard to pick up the book again. So she goes through the history of her entire family. There's a lot of undiagnosed mental illness, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of depression, a lot of stoicism amongst men and being told that you should never speak. And her mother actually had an interesting life. She was raised by a bipolar father, married a super rich man, lived in New York City in a mansion with a moat on 79th and 5th. That old man died. So she was like this rich, young, hot widow in New York City. She lived this like insanely luxurious, glamorous life where she was like the it socialite among town. She had all these friends. People adored her. She went to France and saw Henry Fonda, who at that point was like a burgeoning movie star and so handsome. They became obsessed with each other. They had a baby very quickly and got married. And then he moved her to L.A. where she knew nobody in her life really changed. And of course, as most women do in these books, she had a really traumatic birth experience that her doctors, when Jane was finally able to get her medical records many years later, believe set off her genetic bipolar disorder. So now we're back to the birth of Jane Fonda, who was actually not born Jane Fonda. She was born Lady Jane Seymour Fonda. Very almost famous core. She talks about her dad and says that he was very cold to her. So many times she's met people who find themselves sitting next to him on transatlantic flights and go on and on about what an open person he was, how he drank and talked to them for eight hours nonstop. It makes me angry. I never talked to him for 30 minutes nonstop. We, his intimates, lived in constant awareness of the minefield we had to tread so as not to trigger his rage. The environment of perpetual tension sent me a message that danger lies in intimacy, that far away is where it's safe. She also says that friends described her mother as just an absolute rock, a great friend to have on your side, someone who is just always there for you, which again is just in really strong contrast to the woman that she knew who, first of all, didn't really like Jane that much, and second of all, was just always drifting in and out. She says her mom was very fond of Peter, and it was very clear that Jane was her father's daughter and Peter was her mother's son. She says that it's not until her 60s that she starts actually examining the role her mother played in her life and what happened with her mom, that when she died when she was 11, Jane spent the rest of her life up until her 60s just kind of pretending her mom didn't exist, and nobody ever spoke of her. She knew nothing. When she actually found out that it had been a suicide, she went home and asked her nanny about it. And her nanny said, well, your mother left you and Peter each a note, but they've thrown them out. So she was kind of eradicated from her life. And Jane preferred it that way. She didn't want to feel that she was connected to that woman in any way because she saw her mother as a victim out of control. And Jane thought, like, once you succumb to womanhood, that is your fate. Yeah. So she had a lot of fear revolving around womanhood. She was very afraid of getting her period, afraid of becoming a woman in any way because she didn't want to become her mother. And to her, all of those 70s 
signs were signs that eventually she would end up her mother. So they grew up in L.A. Her mother, her whole life, was very sick, always in bed, very sleepy, and her dad was always distant and cold. And when he was around, everyone knew better than to speak, except for her little brother, Peter, who she admires for never caving and staying himself and never not being like a sensitive little boy, whereas Jane learned early on to suppress all of her emotions. At some point, they moved to Santa Monica. They're living in Santa Monica. World War II happens. Her dad joins the Navy. He comes back a hero. But in the time he was gone, I think he totally turns on the family. She gives him a lot of permission to do so. She's like, like a lot of men, he came back from the war changed. He had been living a man's life with his war buddies, unencumbered by family responsibilities. I think he liked the sense of mission, the male bonding, being success at something real instead of just a screen hero. It's so funny to be like, well, of course he couldn't be a good dad or husband. It was so fun being at war. You can't just ask a man to go to war and come back and love his family. So this is something she does throughout the entire book. It's like a very reoccurring theme is like she will get to the core of like, okay, the way they acted actually wasn't okay. But then she'll not necessarily caveat it, but be like, listen, I know what they did was wrong. But also when you remember the fact that they were raised in this traumatic way or had this traumatic experience, how else was a man to act? Whereas like a woman who isn't living correctly, like needs to just fix it. She gets to the point where she's like, okay, the way these men are acting actually was not good. But she doesn't get so far as to say, and yeah, we all have trauma. After he came home, I sensed that dad was not attracted to mother anymore. She seemed not to be conscious of it, however, and would walk around naked in front of him. I wanted her to put clothes on. Didn't she know? She was probably still very beautiful. Oh, I hate myself for this betrayal of her. But I saw her through my father's judgmental eyes as an adolescent. I would recognize dad's eyes sizing me up unfavorably. I blamed mother for the growing distance that I sensed between her and dad. She wasn't doing the right things to make him love her. And what it said to me was that unless you are perfect and very careful, it was not safe being a woman. Side with the man if you want to be a survivor. Go out there and listen to jazz with them and pour them their whiskey and even bring them women, if that's what they want, and learn to find that exciting. Be better than perfect if you want to be loved and don't walk around naked. So then they move to Connecticut because her dad is starring in Mr. Roberts, a Broadway play that ends up being a huge break for him. In Connecticut is where her mother kills herself. And then as Jane grows up into her adolescence, she becomes very androgynous, very afraid of womanhood. And she's a bit of a class clown. She acts out a lot and she becomes extremely stoic. She is a real hard-shelled kid. She hates to show emotion. She hates to let people see her cry. And of course, this is because her dad has said explicitly, not just implied, emotions are disgusting. I used to think I really wanted to be a boy because that's where the action was. And for a while, I looked so androgynous that I'd be asked whether I was a boy or a girl. That was the biggest compliment I could get. Looking back, I think I just wanted to be exempt from what was required of girlness. I could do tomboy, and I didn't know how to do girl except in my active fantasy life. She also learns here to really harden herself and disassociate. She never allows herself to feel feelings. She never cries over the death of her mother until like late in her adult life, in her 50s, I think is the first time that she starts crying. And she says she couldn't stop for weeks when she finally accessed that part of herself. On the other hand, her brother was acting out and completely spiraling out of control. He shoots himself accidentally, quote unquote. The week that her father remarries, like her father remarried very quickly with the woman that he was cheating on the mother with, who was 22, only nine years older than Jane. When they're out on their honeymoon, the brother shoots himself. And she's like, looking back, I think maybe there was more to it than just a weird coincidence. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Isn't she something the teachers said? The worst things are, the stronger she gets. The kudos I received for appearing strong satisfied a need for approval and locked me into a modus vivendi. Jane, the strong one. 
The shell that I formed around my heart served a purpose by keeping me on my feet, but it solidified both my superficiality and my independence. So her dad remarries this woman named Susan, who actually ends up being a very solid stepmother. Susan is the first person who ever asks Jane if she's okay. She is a very loving and tender woman. She's very open and non-judgmental with certain things. So when Jane finally does get her period, Susan is like, let me help you and let's get you on birth control because you shouldn't have sex yet, but you should be on birth control just in case you do and you don't want to tell me about it. I mean, in this era, to take a 16-year-old to get birth control on your own accord, I think was very good of her. At the same time, though, she's growing up. She's trying to fight puberty. And her dad is very cruel to her. It seems like he never talks to her, but she'll hear him talking about her. I had overheard dad say that my legs were too heavy. When I heard him say that, I went to bed and slept for two days. The only way I knew to escape those words that haunted me for the rest of my life. Quite frankly, my entire life, I feel like it has been skincare versus makeup. And with summer basically here, I would like to let my skin experience the fresh air that I'm enjoying. And that is where Kosas comes in. Kosas makes clean makeup for skincare for reeks. Their complexion products are actually proven to make your skin better. And they're dermatologist tested, safe for sensitive acne prone skin and hypoallergenic. The Kosas Revealer Concealer isn't your mom's concealer. It is creamy, weightless, and it is a total multitasker. A concealer, an eye cream, and a spot treatment all in one. I have been wearing it nonstop for, I think, two or three weeks now. I'd heard great things about it for years and years, and I finally got the Kosas Revealer Concealer. And let me tell you what, I feel like I have aged backwards. It is literally my birthday, and I can't believe that I just dropped 10 years in an instant. My under eye pits have vanished. It is packed with active skincare ingredients. It offers creaseless medium coverage with a smooth radiant finish that looks like your skin is just brighter, more even, and healthier. Take the five-step shade finder quiz to find your perfect match. I cannot believe the way I matched with Kosas Revealer Concealer. I usually feel like I'm off by one or two, and every time I go to the store, they're like, maybe get two concealers and mix them. This concealer is just perfect. Don't choose between wearing great makeup and taking care of your skin. Right now, Kosas is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase of $50 or more when you go to kosas.com slash worm. That's K-O-S-A-S dot com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase of $50 or more, plus free shipping. That's kosas.com slash worm. She really carries this constant belief that she is ugly, that she is too big. She feels just horrible about herself because the only information, the only feedback she gets about herself is from her dad insulting her to other people. I mean, here her legs are too big, but then later he says to a family friend comparing two daughters, well, Jane's got the body, but that one's got the face. Yeah. So it seems like there was no real rhyme or reason. It's just he was always kind of putting her down one way or another. Going into high school, she becomes obsessed with being thin. She says she actually wrote away with box tops and $2 to get a tapeworm in the mail. If you swallowed it, it would eat all your food. She saw a magazine ad for a tapeworm and saved up money to buy a tapeworm. It was a scam, though. She never got one. Luckily, she went to an all-girls boarding school where she learned about bulimia. She and her friend Carol believed that they had invented bulimia. She says that when they were learning about the Roman Empire, they would read about how these people who the higher class people, in order to just like be excessive, would eat a feast and then throw it up and then eat another feast. And she was like, 
Why don't we eat a feast and then throw it up? They thought they invented bulimia from the Roman Empire. I can't believe it. I think that's like the craziest thing I've ever read. Unlike alcoholism, bulimia is easy to hide. Like most people with eating disorders, I was adept at keeping my disease hidden because I didn't want anyone to stop me. I was convinced that I was in control anyway and could stop tomorrow if I really wanted to. I was often tired, irritable, hostile, and sick from this, but my willpower to maintain appearances was such that most of the time, no one knew the true reasons behind it. I will say this is one of the few things in this book that I question. She maintains that she was able to be bulimic and anorexic for 30 years and nobody ever had any idea. I do think that that is like the addiction lying to you. Yeah. I believe nobody cared. I believe nobody probably even thought that it was a bad thing. I'm sure that the men in her life were saying, oh, she's doing what she has to to stay looking the correct way. But if her dad wasn't saying anything to her face, I believe that behind her back he was making jokes. I believe that all of her husbands were probably aware of it, but didn't even think twice about it. I'm sure the women in her life knew. I'm sure lots of people knew, but I don't believe that this was something that people thought you should even mention as a problem. Like, I don't even think anyone necessarily thought they were doing a disservice by not helping her. I think people were like, yeah, that's what you do in society. But I also feel like that was what was so fascinating to me about the Roman Empire thing. It's just that body and beauty standards are so pervasive that like, even if you don't have the example of someone telling you like, this is what you do, it's just baked into our system to be like, where's some inspiration? She also talks a lot about her vagina and reproductive systems. And she says, I write about my vagina, my vagina-related fears because of the work I have chosen to do in my third act. I work with young people on issues surrounding gender, sexuality, early pregnancy, and parenting. It is said that you teach what you need to learn. And through this work, I've learned that the traumas and anxieties I experienced as a girl are not unique to me. And so she goes on this whole thing about why she cares this much. And she does take great pains to be like, and when I was 12, I was worried my vagina was broken and I got my period very late. And that was humiliating to me. And I do think she feels like I will be vulnerable and open to normalize for other people. Mm -hmm. I don't feel we need to get into every time she probably had a yeast infection, but refused to tell anyone and got nervous about it. We've all been there. Sometimes something's off and you're nervous. <laughs> so she mentions getting into acting. It wasn't ever something that was necessarily on the horizon for her. I was too self-conscious and never heard anyone, certainly not my father, talking about getting emotional fulfillment from acting. I never connected acting with joy. In fact, I developed a philosophy Actors are too egotistical. I have problems enough. I don't want to encourage my self-centeredness. It's not for me. In truth, I thought of myself as fat and boring, and I was scared to death of failure. She does end up going to like a summer acting program during the summer that she's going to Vassar College, and that's where she like meets her first love. His name was Gooey. Her dad also remarries. He's on now wife four because her mom was actually his second wife. Wife four was this upper class Italian lady. So they go spend the summer in Europe at one of her beach houses in the south of France. And I just have to say, they spent that summer with the luminaries of the international elite. And then she names a bunch of people that I don't know, like countesses and stuff, Senator Kennedy and Jackie, them I know. And then she was like, we would go on Aristotle Onassis's enormous yacht. We paid a visit to Picasso. We met John Cocteau, Ernest Hemingway, Charlie Chaplin. One day, dad and Dara, which was her name, were entertaining. Greta Garbo came over. Like, she really was just this kid hanging out in the south of France with the most famous people of the 20th century. It's crazy. And you know what Greta Garbo said to her? She and Greta Garbo decided to go down to the beach for a swim. And Jane was like, wow, that's incredible because nobody ever wanted to go down to the beach for a swim. This is like the second time I'd ever even been in the water because everyone was just like at the fancy house. And in the water, Greta Garbo tells her that she is pretty enough to be an actress. And she had never heard anything like that before. And then she's like, well, why would Greta Garbo lie? And I'm like, yeah. I don't think she did. I think she might not lie. 
So then she's at Vassar and actually this is very funny and entitled. She like fails one of her finals and they're like, hey, we'll let you retake it because we know that you're going through a lot at home right now. And she's like, you losers. College is a waste of fucking time if I'm allowed to fail a final and try again. So she's like, I'm out of here. She decides to go to Paris to learn how to paint. She gets there. It turns out she actually doesn't care about painting, but she does hang out with a lot of party people. One of them convinces her to take some nude photos and that gets back to her dad. And he's like, well, we're going to call painting school what it is. And you got to come home. The thing is, she is a Nepo baby through and through. And I don't think that that is a bad thing. I just think that none of her career would have existed. Most people don't become actors because people are constantly banging down their door saying like, you must become an actor. Most people become actors because they like want to really badly. And then they spend 10 years trying so hard. She was friends with the Strasbergs of Lee Strasberg's actor's studio. And someone's like, no, you have to go just like meet him. And she ends up meeting him. And he's like, you've got to come to my class. He's like, there's something in your eyeballs that I just feel a flicker. She doesn't get to be in his studio sessions, which is the elite of the elite. But she is in his private scene study with Marilyn Monroe, who's already famous. So she's in this class. She's petrified every day. She's scared shitless. And one week, finally, there's this activity or an exercise where you have to do object work. And so she goes on stage and she pretends she's drinking a glass of orange juice. And in that moment, she is drinking a glass of orange juice and she tastes the acid and she feels the weight of the glass and she lives it in the tang on her tongue and her lips. And he goes, you've done it. You're an actor. And in that moment, she is so validated that she becomes addicted to acting and she signs up to acting class all the time. And she says, actually, that acting class didn't necessarily help me with acting, but it did give me the self-confidence that I would need to push past the fact that I was just Henry Fonda's daughter. I was a good talent. I guess this is pre-Nepo baby discussion, but she definitely is afflicted of, you don't understand, it was actually harder for me. It was actually harder for me to be the daughter of an incredibly famous superstar. I guess I feel two ways about it because I am like, I'm sorry, she is a striking beauty. Like, I think that she is gorgeous. She seems like a good person who's like trying her best to always be better. But nobody would have banged down her door if she lived in Indiana and said, you must come to the actor's studio. She's truly there because someone yanked her into a room and that room was nearby because of who her dad was. What the classes did for me, however, was provide the confidence I so sorely needed. I know there'd be those who said I'd gotten my breaks because I was Henry Fonda's daughter. At those times, I needed to be able to say to myself, I'm studying hard to develop a modicum of technique. I'm not a dilettante. I don't take this for granted. Because I was Henry Fonda's daughter, there was more attention paid to me and fewer opportunities to fumble and make mistakes incognito. Okay. Oh, there's fewer opportunities for you to not be famous every time you're in a movie and you think that that's bad for your career? That is a silly take. (laughs) So the other thing I was going to say about it is on one hand, of course, it's the silliest take. But on the other hand, I think that one of the reasons her career was able to develop into what it became is because she had no fear of losing it all and that anything was actually her only shot. I think that there is this thing with Nepo Babies where because there is no true preciousness of it, they get to take a lot more interesting chances. Well, when your momentum is your birthright, there's no fear of losing it if you step away for five years to try to combat war (laughs) or become a workout guru. So she gets a studio deal originally. That was back when studios would just sign actresses to like a $10,000 a year or however many thousands dollars of year contract. And you would just be in movies for that studio. And she does one movie on her studio deal. 
And she does not feel great about it. But I think it does really well. I think it makes a lot of money. Yeah, but she does not like the experience of being on set. She doesn't like making movies. She feels very one-dimensional and bad about herself. And she's like, oh, I'm not doing movies anymore. She does a play. She starts to develop more confidence from stage acting. And then a big director reaches out to her to be in a movie. And he offers to buy her out of her studio contract. And she's like, no, I don't want to be under anyone's contract. I'll buy myself out of the studio contract but I will come talk to you about your movie. So basically what she's really saying here is that the thing that she loved in acting was that for the first time she felt she was allowed to express emotions. And Lee Strasberg acting class was the only time she had ever felt truly seen before. I think a lot of our people have that experience where like nobody ever listened to them and and they get up there and they tremble and somebody's like, you know, you're afraid, right? And they're like, I'm afraid. And they just start crying and they're like, ah, nobody ever thought I was afraid before and I've been afraid my whole life. It's not therapy, but it's therapeutic because if you're very repressed, you're given this safe space. You can be emotional because you're someone else. Of course, her dad shits all over method acting. He thinks what she's doing is so stupid, which is very hurtful to her. He hates emotions. He says, I can't believe you're acting with so many emotions. Just say stuff. He's a big, um, have you just tried acting? What do you mean you have to get into character beforehand? Like, just do what the scene calls for. If the scene calls for you to be sad, then be sad. It's very interesting. Everybody's review of knowing him as a real person is identical. And they were like, he was so professional, so technical, so good at what he did, and so fucking ice cold. (laughs) He just sat there like a robot until it was time to come on and do the most moving scene you'd ever experienced. And then he would like go right back to being a robot. I mean, someone said that they were doing a scene with him and he was like so warm and emotive. And then when she touched his arm, it was like steel. But so what she's really saying here is like when she was taking her acting classes, she loved it so much because of that therapeutic aspect of it. And then because her career popped off so quickly, she didn't have any more opportunity to probe depth in herself and in her talent. And I think she felt very stymied. My career began and everything that started to happen with Lee was pushed aside and it all became about hair and big checks and small breasts. And I couldn't handle it coming as it did on the heels of an emerging selfhood. I'm into a three-year tailspin of private self-destruction, depression, and passivity. I don't mean this by way of self-pity. There are a lot of worse things in life than having your body critiqued. And stardom is a whole lot better than a kick in the ass. But it did push all my insecurity buttons. So basically, here she is finally starting to figure out who she is as a person. And she immediately becomes a star who's told, your face is too fat, your boobs are too small, wear as much makeup as you can, we have to fix your hair. And not about her talent and herself. If you are dealing with a house full of picky eaters, meet Hungry Root, the people-pleasing solution to all of your grocery shopping and cooking stress. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries, simple recipes, all in one place. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz at HungryRoot.com, and they'll get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you have. They will keep your needs top of mind to start building your cart for the grocery list of a lifetime. Hungry Root will recommend groceries based on your tastes, and you can take their suggestions or just choose whatever you want. They've got produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, and so much more. I have been on a mostly pescatarian journey, and I've been having, okay, this is the beginning of my smoothie summer. You heard it here first. I'm getting really into smoothies right now. So Hungry Root is able to send me an incredible box of smoothie things, fish things. I am eating better than ever. I swear, you guys, if you see me in a couple weeks and you say, who is that glowing girl? It could be me. The best part is that everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Smoothie summer. 
Just go to HungryRoot.com slash worm to get 30% off your first delivery and your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. So she's pretty quickly whisked off to Paris to make a movie with Roger Vadim, who she had met at a dinner party when she had been living in Paris a little bit before that. And she is not interested. He had made a pretty big movie with Bridget Bardot. And I will say it does seem like a lot of his eras are very bookended by the muse of the era. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is another Salman Rushdie. I guess maybe he is a great filmmaker, but I think people know him for his gals. But she does end up working with him. And then she does end up spending, I guess, seven years living in Paris with him. Yeah, she becomes his new muse. They make most famously Barbarella together. And this kind of cements her as a sex symbol in America, even though it's maybe not the best movie. I think now it's a cult classic sci-fi comedy. But this is her big image maker. And she lives in France and very much starts to live under his thumb. He is 20 years older than her. He's so much cooler and smarter and wiser. I would end up staying in France for six years and at the hands of a man who was a master at polishing a woman's persona. I would start down a new path as a female impersonator. So she has a real pattern, which she recognizes, of becoming the woman that her partner needs. So she comes to these realizations of, okay, here's who I was in this relationship. Here's why it wasn't me. But she won't quite condemn the man. And I think that she had a lot of love for these men. But reading it, I'm just like, you fucking bitch. I hate you, Roger Vadim. He wrote a book just like about the women he's boinked. Because I think the most interesting thing about him is that he's dated Bridget Bardot, Jane Fonda, and then who's the third one? Catherine Deneuve. During the years with Vadim, it never crossed my mind to ask him to help with the household chores. I saw it as women's work, even though it meant doing double duty since I often left home for the studios before dawn and returned after dark while he stayed home and wrote or went fishing. This acquiescence was in part due to the way we were all conditioned and partly because I felt that being the perfect unselfish housewife would make it impossible for him to leave me, just as my mother had thought about my dad. Interesting how we interpret the radical notion of bringing democracy into the house as selfishness. It wasn't that Vadim was mean or wanted to make my life hard. It's just that he didn't notice. And again, then she goes on about like, it's not that I had to do all the work. It's just that if nobody did the work, he didn't even care, which I actually question. I have a feeling he would have said something. He also was one of those fun Frenchmen that didn't believe in monogamy. Yes, he would do it the classic cheater way, but also in the French way where he would bring another girl back for both of them. For a menage a trois, they call it. Sometimes there was three of us, sometimes more. Sometimes it was even I who did the soliciting. So adept was I at burying my real feelings and compartmentalizing myself that I eventually had myself convinced I enjoyed it. So she becomes friends with a lot of these women. She says that's how she humanized herself in the situation. She would have coffee and breakfast with these women the next day. And one of them told her recently that he had said to them, you think Jane's smart, but she's not. She's dumb. Vadim often felt a need to denigrate my intelligence as if it would take up his space. I would think that a man would want people to know that he was married to a smart woman unless he was insecure about his own intelligence or unless he didn't really love her. Two really good points. <laughs> so she talks about how she wasn't even going to discuss this aspect of her marriage. In my public life, I'm a strong can-do woman. How is it then that behind closed doors in my most intimate relations, I could voluntarily betray myself? The answer is this. If a woman has become disembodied from a lack of self-worth, I'm not good enough or from abuse, she will neglect her own voice of desire and hear only the man's. This requires compartmentalizing, disconnecting head and heart and body and soul, overlay her silence with a man's sense of entitlement and inability or unwillingness to read his partner's subtle body signals, and you have the makings of a very angry woman who will stuff her anger for the same reason she silences her sexual voice. 
I think a lot of her relationships have this like modern classic. I wasn't that interested in him, but then he got me pursuing him back and he said no situation. I don't know if I explained that right, but that thing of like I rejected him first, but then he says something like neggy or weird to you that like makes you want him and then he rejected her in this way. So Vadim, she didn't like him at first. And then the first time they had sex, he couldn't get it up. And she's like, this world-renowned lover didn't like me. And it sends her down this spiral. And I think that that's why she pursued him so enormously and like gave so much of herself to him is because she had so much to prove back being like, well, I didn't want him initially, but now his like body is rejecting me. What the fuck is up with that? And something similar happened with both of her next husbands. But the whole time she's talking about how much she loves Vadim and how he was so smart and he was so witty and there was so much good in the relationship and there was so much laughter. He did gamble away her inheritance that she got from her mother, but she didn't realize he was a gambling addict. He also did have a drinking problem. She also was expected to host all of his friends and, of course, all of his lovers. And she was raising his other children. She brought them in and was as dutiful a stepmother as she could be. But one of the things she said was very redeeming about him was that he was a very devoted father. And she did love that about him. I guess that's nice that he's a devoted father. So she goes, you know, when you're trying to build a movie star career, the last thing you should do is move to France for six years. But somehow she keeps getting called back to make movies, (laughs) which is doubly rare because she has a famous father. I can't imagine that this beautiful woman with a famous father was somehow able to keep a career alive, even though she seems to have abandoned it completely. But she's in this movie called Cat Bayou, which ends up being this huge hit. So she's continuing to get these roles. Her career is still growing, despite the fact that she's kind of retreated to France. And through some of her famous friends, she's introduced to the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is a group of people in Mississippi that are helping black voters vote now that the Voting Rights Act has passed. But getting to polls is dangerous. There's voter suppression. It's an organization that she feels very passionate about. And it's the first time that she has been asked to participate in a cause greater than herself. I learned an important lesson that evening. Never underestimate what might be lying dormant beneath the surface of a back-combed blonde wearing false eyelashes. All she might need is to be asked. And this does ignite something within her that she's very passionate about improving the world. She and Vadim buy a farm in France. They get married and she gets pregnant with her first child, Vanessa. Again, she has a very difficult birth. She's not respected by the doctor who puts her under and uses forceps unnecessarily. And when she wakes up, the baby has been taken from her and is kind of kept from her for a few weeks by the nurses in the hospital who say that she has a cold so she can't see the baby. She also suffers from postpartum depression, but they really just didn't even know about it back then. Like nobody acknowledged it. Nobody discussed it. She just felt like she was a failure as a mother. It kind of created this rift between her and Vanessa that I think took quite a long time to repair because not only did she have this difficult birth, And then she was kept from her daughter, and then she was thrust home with a baby. She was raised by nannies, and she was like, that's what you do. I don't know. We got home, and we barely had a connection because I didn't get to be with her in the hospital. And then I passed her off to the nannies because that's the way kids are raised. And it took, it seems like, kind of a while for her and Vanessa to really establish a stronger relationship. She also has a hard time with the pregnancy generally because she says, the pregnancy was incontrovertible proof that I was actually a woman, which meant victim which meant that I would be destroyed like my mother. It was one of those strange moments when I was feeling what I was feeling while simultaneously standing outside of myself, analyzing the feeling and being shocked by what it meant. So while she's pregnant with Vanessa, the U.S. is going to war with Vietnam. And as she's pregnant, she is learning a little bit about this war and very unsure of what to do. She knows it's not good. I don't like criticizing America while I'm in another country and I'm not a dabbler. 
If I was going to oppose the war, it would be in the streets of America with my fellow countrymen. So in France, they're very against the war. And people in France keep saying, like, why would America go to war with Vietnam? They're not going to win. This is a mess. And she doesn't even like hearing about it from them because she's like, well, you're not American, so you shouldn't talk about it. She's also about 30 at this point. And at this point in the book, her second act begins. And she says, I had just ended my second act. And as far as I could tell, my life had peaked and was on the decline. And then at the beginning of the second act, she says, okay, so I was wrong. My life didn't peak, nor was it on the decline. But like everything else in the world, it was about to go through major changes. I was 30, pregnant, ripe. Everything in me was poised like a sprinter at the starting line, twitching to move forward. So she continues to act. After she has Vanessa, she makes a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which is the first time she's ever nominated for an Oscar in a very serious film. And as she starts to come back from a very traumatic pregnancy and come back into who she is as a woman, as an actress, her relationship with Vadim is going badly. Marriages end in stages and it had nothing to do with a piece of paper. Part of mine had ended years earlier when we weren't even married yet, but I'd plowed along in deep denial. She doesn't actually end up getting divorced, but she and Vadim end up breaking up and they get divorced like a while later when she's ready to get a new husband and she needs an official divorce on the docket. As I grew stronger, I felt a parallel weakening of my marriage, a growing dissatisfaction and less willingness to swallow the hurt that Vadim's drinking and gambling, not to mention the threesomes, caused me. So she ends up going back to America, and it wasn't only because the marriage was over that I had come home. I was back because I felt compelled to join those who were working to end the war. And this is the start of her next chapter as a vehement anti-war activist. And she spends hundreds of pages explaining her position, how she came to this position, what she learned, how it affected her. The FBI had a case against her, but they were trying to arrest her several times. They illegally went through her mail. They illegally acquired all of her banking records without a formal subpoena. She actually sued the FBI in 1979 and won, and it created a new act that protects people. She became extremely radical in speaking out against the Vietnam War. She was befriending Black Panthers. She was befriending communists. She was learning about all the different movements within America and becoming a mouthpiece for them. Yeah, and it's so wild the way the association with communism was one of the most scary things about her, I guess. The way that in this book, her dad says, if you're a communist, I'm never speaking to you again. And her dad cuts her off for months. She has to scream from the rooftops, I'm not a communist, I'm not a communist. And no one believes her because of her association with communists. It's so wild to me coming from this day and age where you have like Gen Z on TikTok being like, get ready with me for a day in my life as a communist. It's so crazy to me, just like the utterance of the word would send people reeling. The following is an explanation. An explanation isn't an excuse. I spent a lot of time trying to understand why I did what I did the way I did it. Partly it's the way that I am. My instincts are good, but I am not by nature someone who goes slow. I get the picture quickly, and if something comes into my life and touches me and makes sense to me, I plunge right to the end. My life has been a series of gigantic leaps of faith. Then, too, it was the nature of the times. I returned to an America at war with itself. I wanted to be taken seriously. She was just speaking out a lot. And I mean, obviously now it's literally 50 years later. And I'm like, I don't even know. I guess people were mad at you. That hasn't been my experience. Like I knew that she was like an outspoken advocate, but it's so funny how much of all of how mad that made people. I'm like, it's not really something that people our age, I think, are particularly aware of. It's not at the forefront of my mind. It doesn't color who she is to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does to me in that I like know of her as a fairly progressive older lady. I don't think our generation is aware of how much lack and strife she received. Like this idea that she needs to apologize for the way she behaved and like the mistakes she made. Right. She doesn't need to apologize to us. 
I think one of the harder things about reading this book for me was reading about her coming to certain beliefs and understandings and then like looking at them and seeing how little we've grown as a country. I just found it very stressful to look at some of the conclusions she found as like a fairly sheltered woman in the 60s. And I'm just like, wow, we still haven't grown past it. That is like horrifying. But I do think overall, like the general consensus of younger people has become the norm. Yeah, I don't think it's crazy anymore to question if Vietnam was like a good thing we did. Yeah. So she has this young baby. She is not divorced, but she's separated. And she becomes obsessed with trying to help end the war. And she's going on cross-country road trips. She's going on speaking engagements. She's talking to every young person she can. She's meeting GI resistors who are members of the military who opposed the war in Vietnam. And they have these like secret little setups where she can go and really talk to people. And she is leaving her kid at home. So the kid actually lives with Vadim most of the time. Her three-year-old daughter mostly lives in France. And when Jane goes home, she'll come back for a week or so and live with Jane. Sometimes she lives with a nanny at Jane's dad's house. She says Vadim took on the mothering duties while Jane was out. She says she has a lot of regrets about her lack of presence during Vanessa's early childhood. I mean, she was just very distracted, very passionate, had a little bit of the mental illness from her family, and then also didn't know what was required to be present for a child. And I think her best parental example was her stepmother, Susan. Like, it seems like she was a great parent to Vadim's first daughter, Natalie. Well, I think the pattern here is that she's a good mother insofar as that makes her a good wife. Yeah. But if there's no man that she isn't trying to impress immediately, there's no need for her to be mothering that child. I guess. Because when she was with Vadim, she fully was raising his daughter. And then when she had a daughter of her own, I think to try to establish a bond with Vadim, as soon as that bond was broken, she kind of had no use for the daughter. I guess I feel like part of it was that. And I think part of it is that she's like very good at listening and being present for like short spurts of time, which is kind of above and beyond for a step parent. But I think like the constant steady presence of a parent is not something that she can do. She was not a feminist. Something very interesting about her growth as a person. So she's now in her early 30s fighting for the war. She's very involved with Native American rights and helping Native American tribes get their due and respect and ending the war, making known the effects of bombing. And yet she writes in her journal, don't understand the women's liberation movement. There are far more important things to have a movement for, it seems to me. To focus on women's issues is divisionary when so much wrong is being done in the world. Each woman should take it upon herself to be liberated and show a man what that means. It takes her a very long time to understand feminism and to align with feminism. She really believed it's girly problems. <laughs> Did I write that? Whew. I have included it here because I think it's important to see how far a person can evolve. I made it abundantly clear that I had not taken it upon myself to be liberated and show Vadim what that meant. I didn't know yet that when part of the population is viewed as less than culturally, economically, historically, politically, psychologically, it cannot be changed individually by an individual. It takes the accumulated effort of many working in concert for systemic change. I do find her to be like deeply honest about things that are like unlikable and hard to say. Long after I started identifying myself as a feminist, I still would not be brave enough to look within myself and identify the subtle ways in which I had internalized sexism. My willingness to forgo emotional intimacy with a man and betray my own body and soul if being honest and speaking my voice meant losing him. Put another way, I was the only person I could treat badly and consider that morally defensible. 
she got breast implants at 50 after spending all of her 30s and 40s fighting for like progressive movements and being so upset about what the United States had done specifically to the women of Cambodia and Vietnam and the way that like Western beauty standards have been imposed on these women and what it had done physically to their bodies. And she like met her second husband actually opening an art show across the nation showing photos of the United States' cultural effects specifically on Vietnamese women. And then for her to then go out and get breast plants, which was literally something that at one point had made her cry when she saw it on another woman because she felt so sad. She saw it as such an oppression. I found this to be a really interesting and like deeply honest and vulnerable story about how contradictory people can be and like how hard it is to be strong in every area. It's just like a really harsh truth about how easy it is to recognize injustice outside of you. For her to say the subtle ways the patriarchy has affected me. I would actually not call them subtle at all. <laughs> like, you mean the nightly threesomes and the fact that your husband director put you in a sex movie? Yeah. Or like later when you were in multiple relationships into your 60s where you were afraid to say your feelings to a man for fear of like not being attractive to him anymore. What about that pregnancy that like shook you to your core or a doctor said you don't know what you're talking about and knocked you out? Anyway, the subtle way is that the patriarchy affects us all. Even the way that she has converted to feminism is steeped in patriarchy. She says two full times in this book that the thing that helped her come around to feminism is the realization that men are also harmed by the patriarchy and that equality means improving the lives of men and women because they won't be as oppressed by the own expectations of manhood, which will make women's lives better as well. And I do think to say twice that you like feminism because men will have better lives. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just think that there is subtle patriarchy at play. <laughs> okay, as per our precedent set by Prince Harry, we can't get into explaining wars. We have to brush through the Vietnam part. I think what matters is, one, how intensely she took it. Two, that what is important to her in this book is to get across that she was pro-soldier that she felt that what was being done to them, what was being asked of them, what was happening to veterans when they got back was really fucked up and that the U.S. was at fault because these presidents were sending men into wars that they knew we could not win, asking them to do war crimes and then sending them back home broken. And she is deeply upset by a couple of missteps she took that made it seem like she was anti-soldier when in fact most of her message was that I want the soldiers to band together. I'm anti-war but pro-soldier. And so that's something that's very important to her. Of course, the FBI stalking her is very important to her. She became persona non grata number one. I think she was a very hated person publicly. She was arrested at one point coming back into the United States after a speaking engagement in Canada. She had recently discovered supplements and vitamins. And so she had these containers of supplements for breakfast, lunch, and dinner labeled BLD. And when she re-entered the United States, she was detained. They searched her bag. They took her pills and said that she was smuggling drugs back into the U.S. She tried to get out of the room that she was in to go to the bathroom, and the guard would not let her go change her tampon, so she shoved him and was then detained for assaulting an officer. Eventually, all the charges were dropped, but it became a pretty big storyline. She also, at the beginning of this in 1970, was in this movie Clute about a call girl that she tried very hard to make realistic and give a 3D life to, and she was nominated for her first Academy Award. Or her second. I think this is the first one she won. 
God, she does a lot of stuff. That's why it's so fucking hard. You're like, when when you were going to Vietnam by yourself and like meeting Viet Cong and also being attacked at universities where you were giving anti-war speeches, did you also have time to make an Oscar-winning movie? <laughs> right? But it's like all in here. So she doesn't want to be a celebrity anymore. She has no interest in it. She wants to just give her life to the causes. She cuts her hair short and dyes it brown, which is proof number one that a lady wants a different life. Total breakup bangs. But then some people within her organization are like, well, you're the most famous one here. So if you keep on being famous, we reach more people. And she's like, oh, okay, I hear you. We'll make another movie then. Through her resistance efforts, she meets a man named Tom Hayden. They flirt. She doesn't see him again. One year later, he shows up and basically hits on her. And she is so taken with him. He says, I need you to help me with this art show I want to bring around America because I want to humanize what's happening in Vietnam to the people here so that they understand the importance. And she's like, I love that about you. She falls in love with his mind, with his passion for causes. And together, they become like super activists. I feel like he might be more problematic than she let on because it seems like he was kicked out of a group. But I'm like, poor kiss. I will say she doesn't illustrate that many of his red flags early on in the same way where the other husbands were so immediately red flaggy to me. But she says early in dating Tom, she falls head over heels from immediately. One day, a friend of his comes to visit and Tom and the friend, a woman, go chat in another room. The girl leaves crying and she says to Jane, he has no heart, no emotions. I thought she can't be referring to the time I know. Tom in his own book has written about the moment that he met Jane and says, I was talking about the image of superficial sexiness she once promoted and now was trying to shake. I looked at her in a new way. Maybe I could love someone like this. So she's in the midst of trying to change her image. He is a very serious activist who takes himself very seriously as a real intellectual and everything that he does needs to be backed up by a moral authority, which I always find off-putting. I just find it dangerous when a man is able to be like, this is how I feel. And actually the way I feel is correct on a political, systemic, moral good level. Yeah. And actually laws should be rewritten because the, what I'm saying is valid in this like higher way that you and your emotions could never touch. I don't even have feelings. I have knowings and what I know is right and what is wrong. So she gets invited to go to Vietnam, which is very exciting for her. It's a real honor. Tom is like, you have to go. And she is like, will you go with me? And he's like, no, they invited you, not me. Which I do feel like sending her in there completely alone was crazy. She also goes with a broken foot, but she has an incredible time. She doesn't go in there with a broken foot. She breaks her foot on the way and has to have her foot treated on a layover in Russia and then again in Vietnam. She has an incredibly eye-opening experience. She's also able to bring back documentary footage that proves that the Americans have been bombing dikes that are like going to explode in the rainy season, but they were doing it in such a way that an aerial view wouldn't show. She gets all this evidence of war crimes and somehow all that footage is gone historically, but she knows she had it. She previewed the movie. But the one misstep is she takes this photo with Vietnam guns and... And she's like singing and smiling and like there's guns pointed at the sky and they're like, she's gleefully joining the Vietnamese and shooting down American planes. She says, no, I don't want to go over there. And then they're like, no, no, just go for a quick minute. And then she goes over a quick minute and she knows there's a photo is being taken and she's like, just make that sure that photo doesn't get out. And they're like, totally, of course not. And of course it does get out. And now she's like, I guess there's a chance they planned it that way all along. And I'm like, yeah, Jane, I think you got used. <laughs> I'm sure you had a great time, but I have a feeling that this was helpful to them. I was framed and turned into a lightning rod for people's anger, frustration, and misinformation. So she is once again 
a bit of a target for anger, hatred, fear, patriotism. She also makes another like blanket statement because she met some prisoners of war when she was there and she's like, they weren't being tortured. I'm like, I don't know that you met all of the prisoners. Yeah, and then she goes, I later found out that actually there was a period where they were torturing prisoners, so my bad. Yeah. I guess not every POW is a liar. And this goes back to what she says in the aside earlier of she yammered a lot. And I think that overall she was right in her general mission. And there were a few moments where she spoke in a way where I think when you're talking about something this important and this major, there are missteps to be had. And I think for someone who was trying this hard to do good, there's always these little moments because that's what they do. That's the whole point of the FBI as a PR agency. Who are they going to date next? <laughs> <laughs> she has this wild moment in the future, I think in the 80s when she's filming a movie, and I guess it followed her around Hanoi, Jane people who hated her. It was a real lightning rod for controversy. And she was filming a movie in Connecticut. And the local newspapers and media were getting all riled up that this anti-American woman was going to be in their town. And so she holds a town hall in a church where she invites people to come and talk to her. And it's her and all these veterans. And she like apologizes for the mistakes she made and explains the horrors that she saw and the things she knew that America was doing to Vietnam, like the use of Agent Orange and the way that they would just bomb entire cities. And I will say, in this book, she does a very impressive job of detailing how awful it was and like how badly it needed to stop and the fact that the presidents knew we wouldn't win and everyone was scared to like pull out because they didn't want to seem like they were being soft on communism and people were just being sent there to kill and to die. And she's like, this is what I was seeing. I felt I didn't want lives wasted for no reason. And all these men came to like scream at her and one said that they were actually going to come and kill her. And then they all said their piece too and everybody kind of left like on a healing journey. I don't know. Everybody just was able to say what they needed to say. That's really beautiful. I have to say that's like incredibly brave. Literally a man said I was prepared to come and throw an ace of spades in your face, which is my calling card for when I kill people. And then he threw it in the garbage because he was like, all right, I think maybe we just got off on the wrong foot. <laughs> people got to talk more is what I'll take away from that. I could sense myself connecting with people better. This was a lesson that would serve me well in the future once I'd fully learned it. It took a while. Oddly, I had a hard time being personal in my speeches when Tom was present. His brilliance as a speaker intimidated me, and I worried that I wouldn't be political enough. Over his decades of activism, Tom had grasped the big picture, one that allowed him to place the Vietnam War in the context of U.S. history and global history. But it was his big picture. Was there a big picture, a unifying narrative that I could embrace as a woman? Not knowing the answer, I took shelter in Tom's narrative, which was compelling and enlightening. It would take me 30 years and some to discover my own gender-grounded narrative. She really puts these men on pedestals. I was both in love with and in awe of Tom. For me, he was a friend, mentor, lover, savior, pillar of support, and an example of what I hoped I could become. I saw him as a pure person who could not be corrupted, someone who was on an eternal quest to understand human nature. So while she's in Vietnam hiding in bomb shelters because every few hours the alarms go off because of air raids, she is crouched in a little nook on the side of the road and she decides, I love Tom so much and as proof of our hope for the future, we're going to have a baby. <laughs> and so she goes home and she's like, we're going to have a baby. And we don't have his perspective here. I know he has a memoir too. I absolutely will not read it. But she spends a lot of time being like, and there I was thinking of Tom, and there I was admiring Tom. It's obviously her words, so I can't say for sure, but it does not feel like a returned admiration. Well, she quotes him later, and whenever he was interviewed about what he loved about her, it's always like, politically, we were aligned strategically in a way that could affect the most change. 
and things like that. They end up getting married because when he calls his mom to say that they're pregnant, she goes, well, what are you going to tell Johnny Carson about why you're not married? And he goes, I think it would detract from our larger purpose if we weren't married because that's one more question we have to answer. It does seem like they were really devoid of romance outside of this shared passion project of theirs to end a war. But she believes the passion is for their relationship and the war. I don't think she's aware that the passion is not. I also think she like respected and looked up to him so much that things that were actually controlling, she saw as him just having the better perspective and better ideas about life. But in reality, when you look at what he was doing to her, he was making her smaller. So one of the things is they weren't allowed to live a nice middle class life because he thought that that was counter to their anti-elitist mentality or whatever. So he made them live in kind of a more dangerous area of town. They weren't allowed to have security. They lived in a small house. They weren't allowed to have any hired help. They had a lot of people living with them. He just kept inviting people to live with them. And on top of that, she was wanted by the FBI and a hated celebrity. And they did have their house get raided. They had people break into their house. And later they found it was the FBI. Even though she was so commercially successful and had money from her stardom and movies, they were never allowed to live like it. And she says, I loved my house, but more than anything, I wanted to do what Tom thought was right. So they moved to this small house. She talks about a lot of the bullshit about this house. It was filled with cockroaches and it was ugly. And she's like, but I actually loved being there because we had a community there. I love community living. And I'm like, I love that you love that. So they end up having a little boy named Troy. Troy was the name they picked because... T-R-O-I is a Vietnamese name, too. And I'm like, okay, we get it. You guys have a thing. You guys love Vietnam. And they picked the last name Garrity, which is a different family name in his family. His mom's made a name. I find that very interesting. I guess they were huge stars. But I guess it was pre-social media where you wouldn't necessarily know everybody's kid. Yeah. Like if I met Ryan Reynolds' daughter and her name was like, like Troy Garrity... I wouldn't go, oh, I know you're Ryan Reynolds' kid. That's true. Like, if you keep your kid off social media, which everybody did back in the day. Because there was no social media. Once the war was over, I returned to filmmaking, and Tom began to investigate the pros and cons of running for U.S. Senate. Although I did not see it at the time, in hindsight, I realized this marked the beginning of a less harmonious time in our marriage. So she goes back to acting, and he starts running for office, and would you believe he finds her work frivolous and in service of his work? She accidentally just does hit after hit. She does Julia with Vanessa Redgrave. She does Fun with Dick and Jane. And then she does this movie, Coming Home, that wins a ton of Oscars and that she had helped conceptualize from the beginning. She came up with this idea. It's about veterans returning home from war. It's about the things she cares about. She like is returning to movies and wondering, is there a way that I can make movies that can actually help larger progressive issues? And this is what she comes up with, like making movies about things she cares about. They're very successful. Tom is very frustrated that she is being taken away from the home for extended periods of time and not tending to him. At one point, she goes to Paris for three months to film and they find a nanny to help Tom raise the little boy. And Jane's like, oh, that's a sexy nanny. And then when he comes out to visit her, he goes, you know how you said the nanny was sexy? And she goes, don't finish your sentence. So he did fuck around a lot. They just never talked about it. She was like, well, I never asked him to be monogamous. Now that I think about it, if I think about the other kinds of women he was with, maybe he didn't expect monogamy because he was used to dating more open women and I should have announced it. Bitch, you got married. If there's one guaranteed place to have the what are we conversation, it's the part at the altar where he says, do you take this man? And you say, do you take this woman? If that is not a monogamous situation, it has to be discussed. God, and the thing is, even though reading about Tom, he sounds like such a fucking dipshit as a husband. I'm sorry if he was like politically a real hero. 
she's so in awe of him at all times and he is so dismissive of her. So she gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars for coming home. I wore a dress that a supporter of Tom's designed for me and I accepted my Oscar in sign language to acknowledge GLAAD, an advocacy organization for the deaf and hearing impaired that supported Tom. And like, yes, I think that that is very beautiful that she accepted her award in sign language. And I think it's beautiful that she like found a local designer to help her dress. But the fact that she's like, well, Tom's friend said, Tom's friend did this. Like Tom's friend knows this. And how did he repay her? He invites their couple's friends, Robert. And for some reason, I can't find the wife's name. I think it was Kimberly. But they had helped write and produce the script and the movie. And he calls them over to clear the air. And they're all kind of like, we don't know what air clearing needs to happen, but you know, they were of the 70s in California. And there was this idea that constantly breaking people down and speaking your truth was like the closest you could get to bettering yourself. So they were all prepared to clear the air. And it turned out what air he wanted to clear is he thought that Jane was taking too much attention about the movie and that it was fucked up of her to be receiving all of this credit when she was nothing but the actress when it was the real people in real life who were doing hard work that she represented and they were not getting as much credit as her. And the other couple was like, oh, we're not mad about this. Like, I don't know. She's the star of the movie. She was nominated for an Oscar. She was allowed to be in the magazines. And he was like, no, 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 no. We need to get this off your chest. And she owes you an apology for taking all the attention and credit away. And she's like, the couple later would be like, yeah, it was weird how angry and hateful he was towards you that you were doing well. So that's the kind of husband he was. And later she talks about as their marriage started to deteriorate, a friend of hers was like, yeah, he drove all of your friends away. Like, you don't have female friends anymore because he doesn't let you have that. I guess because she has a child with him. She doesn't really say very many disparaging things about Tom. I think she still admires him enormously to this day and, like, would not have left him if he hadn't left her. He passed, I believe, Prop 64, which keeps chemicals out of California drinking water. And she's like, we should all thank him. She really is in awe of him, even though he couldn't handle for a minute her not serving him completely. One other thing that her and Tom did together is they started a camp for children from all different backgrounds. And through this camp, they ended up meeting and adopting another daughter named Lulu. It's the 70s. She's trying to figure out a way to make money. She wants to support all these causes. And what you need is money. And she's like, I'm not very business minded. I wanted to be a producer, but that didn't really seem the cards for me. She likes creating the story, but she doesn't like doing the numbers. And she loves working out. She goes to this woman, Lenny's workout. And this was at a time when women were not really allowed to sweat. And they definitely were not allowed to be lifting weights. It was like the biggest fear was that a woman would work out and get too bulky. All women really had were like saunas and those things you taped to yourself that jiggled you. Her whole life, she had always done ballet because that was her workaround for a cardiovascular activity a woman was allowed to do. At one point, she couldn't do it. So she starts going to these classes with this woman, Lenny. They're 90 minutes. They're brutal. Lenny was a smoker and had asthma, so she didn't like to like get her heart rate up or have to breathe heavy, but it was a lot of lifting weights and you sweat, but you weren't necessarily running. And Jane becomes obsessed with them and she's like, we have to make this the thing to do. And so they open up a couple studios. It becomes a huge success. Like they cannot keep people out of the doors. Bitches are fighting over lockers. She said they were servicing 70,000 customers a year. So they start selling these tapes and the tapes go gangbusters. And she was resistant to it. But a friend of hers, a woman goes, listen, shut down the brick and mortar stores. There's no money in doing that straight to home video. And this was before people even had VCR. She's like, I've never even seen someone buy a video before. Why would they do that? But it's like there'd never been a movie that you'd watch over and over again. You watch a workout tape every day. She became, to this day, the biggest selling home movie of all time. And she ended up making, in that first year or two, $17 million for whomst? For the organization that she ran with Tom that supported what he believes were important causes. And these causes were important to her, too. 
But it's important to know that it was like a thing that they shared. And that was the whole basis of this workout business is that they needed to make money to fund Tom's causes. The one problem is they did not know how to involve Lenny because her lawyer was like, listen, for it to be a tax write-off for us to make the most money, it makes sense for the nonprofit to own the workout videos. And she's like, but we didn't know what that meant for Lenny because she deserved more credit than just being an instructor, but we didn't know where to put her. And she's like, looking back, I should have asked her what would work for you. But instead, I didn't say anything. And she ended up just getting married and leaving. And she got no piece of the pie. So this hugely successful workout empire that was based off of Lenny's workouts that she invented, Lenny got not a dollar from. And she is like, I need to set the record straight. I basically stole it from her. I'm so sorry. I wish I had gone to her and spoken to her. It turns out Lenny had a tough childhood and did not know how to speak up for herself. And I'm like, yeah, well, it seems like she was being pushed out by some pretty powerful people. It also doesn't seem like Lenny's mad. She and Lenny stayed friends. Instead of dealing with it, she goes, I'm getting married and we're doing a two-year honeymoon where we're sailing around the world on a yacht. So Lenny did okay. I mean, it's all nice to be married to a lot of money, but if you could have easily earned a lot of money, that feels even better. Yeah, I do feel like finding out that something you created was worth like tens of millions of dollars would be hard on me. Meanwhile, Tom is like, your workout thing is stupid and superficial. And she's like, well, then how do you want your business to run? I fucking hate Tom. The other thing is it did help a lot of women. And it feels silly to be like, toning your butt made an impact, but Women were allowed to work out and like it is empowering to be allowed to work out and feel good in your body and feel stronger. Yes, I really agree with that. And like not being able to sweat sucks. Helping women find joy in fitness is a huge thing. I think funding these causes that were helping people is a huge thing. I think Tom is a wet blanket. May he rest in peace. I also do think it's worth saying that after a couple of years of seeing how successful her workout tapes were, they were like, maybe this should be its own business. And she's like, and I can use the business to keep funding the CED, which was the group they had. But she's like, I mean, how much money do they even need? (laughs) When I met Tom, my attention had been focused almost entirely away from my film career, and there was no reason to assume I would ever want to be a major star again. While I had been active in the anti-war movement for two years before meeting him, Tom's unique decade-long experience as an organizer made it natural for me to follow his lead. This created a power balance between us that offset the inordinate celebrity that accrues to movie stars. So basically, this is the disillusionment of their marriage. And she really couches it in this situation of like, he didn't know he was marrying a movie star because even though I was a movie star, that's not what I was doing when we met. And he didn't think I would like that anymore. He married an activist and I'm asking him to put on a suit for an event, which is really mean of me. But really what happened is that he liked when they met, he was the guy in charge and she was an underling and he likes an off-balance situation. (laughs) So she ends up having an affair, but he also has like a lot of affairs, so. She says ironically, during the affair, their marriage got a lot better, but she just couldn't handle living the double life. She makes nine to five with Dolly Parton. I mean, her career is still skyrocketing. And every movie is more successful than the last. Yeah. She also says at this point she was in her 40s and living on sheer willpower. The effort it took me to keep the outer me together left the inner me exhausted for longer and longer stretches of time. Sometimes it took a whole week to recover from a binge and purge. She's like, I'm not saying it every time, but I lived with an addiction to my eating disorder that colored all of this time. And as she got older, it was taking a larger and larger toll on it. And I think she just was at a point where she wanted to be able to live honestly and she wanted to be able to speak up for herself. She was still scared to do it, but she was for the first time sensing I'm allowed to say what I want. And recognizing there may be consequences, but I don't know how much longer I can live not being heard. Eight years, as it would happen. I still needed a man to validate me. Sometimes that came from the waist down. Sometimes it came from the neck up. So she does the movie 9 to 5, 
with Dolly Parton and meeting Dolly Parton is very awakening for her because she's like, I want to know your people. She goes on a little bus tour with Dolly into the mountains of Tennessee to meet these families and she's very inspired by them and it sets off another filmmaking project for her. She does The Doll Maker, which is about people from Appalachia and she wins an Emmy for it. She makes her big movie, though, that's like an emotionally wrought film for her is On Golden Pond. This is a film about a daughter who returns home to her emotionally repressed father. They both feel deeply hurt by one another, but don't know that the other one feels it too. And this is their potentially last chance to make good. If that story sounds familiar, it is because it is the story of her and her father, who at this point in time was suffering from heart failure and had literally months to live. So this movie was literally them having like their final conversations that Jane could never actually honestly have with her father via characters. I mean, the only way her dad can have a conversation is via characters or drunk on an airplane with a stranger. So she figures out how to do it via characters because they just aren't strangers. Although in some ways they are. Catherine Hepburn plays her mom and she is a wacky lady. She is funny. She was very concerned about not getting top billing. She was very concerned about Jane Fonda winning an Oscar and then being tied because at this point, Catherine Hepburn had three and Jane Fonda had two. And Jane did not win, but Catherine did. And Catherine called up Jane and says, good luck catching me now. (laughs) I also really love this moment from Catherine. She says, you've taught me to respect you, Jane. You faced your fear. Everyone should know the feeling of overcoming fear and mastering something. People who aren't taught that become soggy. I think it's really important to not become soggy. And me and Jane both carry this for the rest of our lives. Can I say... The fear that she faced and overcame, though, in this situation was doing a (laughs) backflip into water. She has this very emotional, poignant moment with her father in the movie. She's like, I thought you didn't like me. And she touches his arm. And she had been hysterically crying every time they rehearsed it because it was so true to her experience and knowing that like her and her father may never have closure or a moment of breakthrough before he dies. And then when it was time to go do the scene, she dries up and she can't get herself to cry. And then Catherine Hepburn is like hiding in the bushes, cheering her on and being like, I know you can do it. I believe in you. And like giving her the thumbs up and pounding her fists. And like Jane's able to get it together and cry. And she touches her father on the arm for the first time, which is not how they rehearsed it. But she thought that that would give him like a moment of a real intimacy to respond to. But then afterwards, she goes home and talks to him, hoping that they could have like a real conversation about the scene they just had and how it applies to their life and their relationship. And she goes, have you ever just dried up like that? And he just goes, nope. She was like, you've never had a moment where a scene was hard. He goes, nope. And that's when she realized she would never get a true earnest feeling from him. So the movie goes out. It's a huge success, as I said. And something about this movie that was so important for Jane to get made is her father had never won an Oscar. And his whole persona was, oh, awards are stupid. I don't even believe in them. And he was pretty sick at the time, so he couldn't have even gone to the Oscars, but he did get nominated. And when he wins the award, she goes up on stage, accepts the award on his behalf, And says it was the happiest moment of her life. But you won too. Also, there's just something so sad about her being so desperate to make this movie, to give him his award, to try to make him happy and like be a part of something that he's finally proud of. And he's not even that proud of it. He doesn't even care that much. And then, yeah, he dies five months later. Finally, her and Tom break up on her 51st birthday. He's like, I love someone else. That's pretty mean. And it takes her a while to even accept that. She doesn't make a move out. She just kind of like lives with it for a while. And then finally she tells a friend and goes home, puts all his stuff in a bag and then throws it out the window and is like, okay, I need help. And she's like, I have to discover myself. I can't keep being in these situations. 
Who am I? She had it written into her divorce settlement that he could not speak at her funeral because she's like that opportunistic bitch would love to make a speech. She says she was finally starting to try to listen to her body, but instead she made this choice. I was broken, sexless and fallow. I think it was when people have lost touch with their spirit, their life force, that they become most vulnerable to consumer culture and the toxic drive for perfection. Instead of dealing with my crisis in a real way, I got breast implants. I am ashamed of this, but I understand why I did it at the time. I somehow believed that if I looked more womanly, I would become more womanly. So much of my life had become a facade. What did it matter if my body was a list of falsehoods? Pretty immediately upon breaking up with Tom, she gets a call from Ted Turner of the Turner Broadcast Network's company. Yeah, which is confusing because then she's like, over the following months, a wash in what felt like miracles, surrounded by the love of my children and woman friends, I could feel myself growing stronger. The sense of being led remained. The dark, empty space inside was beginning to fill with spirit. I was entering my body and I could feel a quickening. But it seems like she got into a relationship with Ted Turner of CNN and Turner Classics and like Turner money. Immediately. Immediately. He called her the day of her divorce. He called her and then she goes, I'm not ready yet. Call me in three months. I guess from the moment they started talking to the moment they officially got together was like a year. He called her and said, I want to take you on a date. I heard you're single now. And she said, I'm not really interested. She's like, I think I'm having an emotional breakdown. I need you to call me later. So then three months later, he calls and they end up having dinner. And the whole time he's like nervous and talking nonstop. And she's like, I don't know if he liked me. He must find me boring because I didn't say a fucking word. But sure enough, he calls her the next day bright and early and is ready to keep talking and is like, what are you doing this weekend? Why don't you come over? What are you doing? And wants to schedule the entire summer with her. So she goes and spends a weekend with him. They have great hot sex. She's blown away by their chemistry. He talks the whole time. He's a real fucking weirdo. He's a super oversharer. He doesn't hold back a single thing he's ever thought. But she finds him very charming and she thinks they have a great connection. To me, this is a love bummer. Yeah, she's like, you know, there was a red flag in that one time I said something about myself and it didn't seem to pierce the surface at all of his consciousness. He just kept talking about himself again. But he was so cute. She's like, I felt like we had such intimacy because he shared so much about himself. And I'm like, on date one? That means he's sharing about himself on every date. Also, he called her up right after his divorce and he goes, I'm having a really hard time right now. I just broke things off with my mistress that I broke my family up over a couple years ago. So I'm really feeling alone. And she's like, oh, okay. My husband just left me for his mistress. Tough stuff for you. Sorry about that. So on this weekend in Montana, he says, I think you're perfect for me. We care about the same issues. We're both overachievers. We're both in the entertainment business. And you need someone who's as successful as you. And I'm more successful than you. So that's good. And he tries to plan the whole summer with her. And then she's like, well, we'll see how things go. They end up putting one weekend on the calendar for Big Bear in like September. But by the time it comes around, she has found an Italian lover. And she calls him and says, I can't come to Big Bear with you. I have an Italian lover. He's obsessed though. And he comes and he shows up and he begs for her to take him back, give him another chance. And she's like, I don't really think this is right for me. Of course, her and the Italian lover break up. And Ted Turner has been there the whole time waiting. He's got spies. He shows up again. And she's just taken by how hard he works to be with her. And they're together for a full year when she catches him full on cheating on her. But he also says these things throughout. Like he'll say... I need to know if this is serious because I have another girlfriend in Atlanta and if things aren't serious with you, I'll make them serious with her. And also he's cheating on her constantly. Actually, it takes her a full year to say, I want to be monogamous. And in that time, they're together like 80% of the time, but whenever they're not together, he has another girl ready to go. You know, he's dropping her off at home and the car's directly taking him to this next date. He also initially says, if we are together, you can't have a career anymore. Yeah. And at first she was like, I could never do that. And then he goes, well, think about it. Do you really want to give up happiness? He goes, well, I know you're going to want to win an Oscar. And she goes, I have two Oscars. And he goes, okay, well, so you got nothing left to do. 
He's like, do you really want to give up on intimacy? And every time she pushes back in any way, he goes, you're self-sabotaging because you're afraid of intimacy. Whenever she finds a project or a hobby or even just like picks up a camera because she likes to take photos, he's like, you're taking away from us because you're afraid of intimacy. But really what he wants is 24-7 companionship. Ugh. She gives us a whole backstory of his dad and his dad's dad and like why it's not his fault that he was fucked up as a kid. And like maybe. But at some point when you're a 70-year-old man with billions of dollars, you got to take a little bit of accountability. I mean, this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. Is she goes down these long rabbit holes, pages and pages of why a guy treated her not necessarily so well. And at some point, I just really don't care about the explanation. I think that she deserves to have someone who has healed. Okay. I think at 51, you should feel empowered enough to say, no, I'm allowed to have a job still should I want it. Her kids were horrified. They were horrified about the last husband. They hated this husband. Vanessa was not happy. She said, from her vantage point, I was giving myself over to another man. The writing was on the wall. Vanessa was right. God, Vanessa has a zinger at the end of this book that's going to knock you on your feet. Off your feet. Knock you. Well, I assume they're sitting and listening. (laughs) It'll knock you right to the top. So she ends up with Ted Turner. She catches him cheating on her because this is so stupid. She's waiting outside his office for him. They're living together. She's literally waiting outside his office for him. And she sees a woman come out of his office that she had just seen go in like an hour before. And she calls the woman's name out because she knows her. And the woman hides behind a pillar and she just goes, oh, she was just up there fucking Ted. So she calls the assistant and goes, was Ted just having a nooner? And the assistant's like, no, no, he's coming down. And so she beats him up with a phone. They break up. And then all of her friends are like, can't you just give him another chance, though? What if he's happy with another woman and it could have been you? That was crazy to me, that advice. A friend goes, you should give him one more chance because if you see photos of him happy, you'll wish it was you. Any hoodles. Any hoodles. They end up getting married. Hooray. And she plays the part of dutiful wife. And she does love that he has a lot of money to give. And she's like, he's uncouth and always apologizing. But he does put his money where his mouth is. And he's always giving tens and hundreds and millions of dollars. He just keeps buying ranches on Montana and raising bison. All they do is fish in Montana. And they have this exciting life. And she has causes where she gets to go in and be like, well, think about the people. And he goes in and goes, and here's some money. And she's like, did it make me sick to my stomach to go to these corporate events where like policies were hurting people, but making these men richer? Yeah, but I guess, you know, I wasn't going to fight. They were important to Ted. And this is who she had become. She had gone from being this like super progressive woman to a first lady of a rich billionaire. And he is interested in certain causes. He'll say to his friends, I like what she said about the Vietnam War. And she's like, that's very important that he backed me up on that. I remember feeling a shiver when it dawned on me that being with Ted would mean being divorced from my own history. During dinner, I again noticed that my words lay like droplets on an oil slick, never penetrating his surface. This vague indifference to what was not himself left me feeling unseen. So even a hobby, it's one thing that she gave up her career, but she takes up photography and he's like, I hate that you're doing all those photos instead of hanging out with me. She gets really interested in birds. She also gets very involved in preventing childhood pregnancy and works with the Georgia Campaign for Adolescent Pregnancy Prevention. So she gets very involved in grassroots movements and he is helpful with the money. She's at something with Bill Clinton and it finally clicks on her that the way that they pretend that like women aren't important and women's groups aren't allowed to have a seat at the table that actually it's pretty hard to have social and economic progress if you're not considering women and girls because a lot of things hurt them and they're like a big chunk of the population actually. Anyway, so this is like a lightning bulb for her and her feminism. She's also about to turn 60 and she's having this feeling about, okay, I'm about to enter my third and final act. What has this all been about? And she is very well aware that the thing she wants to conquer next is her fear of intimacy. And she 
is like being moved spiritually. She starts going to a therapist and she wants to like delve deep down. And the thing about Ted is he absolutely does not fucking want to. And she keeps trying to do it on her own. He would never go to therapy. And she's like, his whole thing is he stayed busy to run from his problems. So to be on his arm was exciting and fun. And we did so much, but I was tired of doing so much. I wanted to work down. I didn't want to always be lateral and surface let up full. And she started being like, I'm going to do this alone. And hopefully he comes with me. But I don't know that he will. And not only is it not okay for her to do together, he kind of refuses to let her do it on her own. Any time that she takes for herself, any time that she takes to try and stop and like look back at her life, he's furious. Like she cannot take two hours by herself to read. She always has to be on his arm. And she kind of has this breaking point where for her 60th birthday, they throw this huge party and there's all these home videos of her as a kid. And she asks her filmmaker daughter, Vanessa, to kind of put together a little movie of her life. And this is where Vanessa says, why don't you just get a chameleon and let it crawl across the screen? Zing, kapow. Ouch. That was the rap on me. I've had so many persona over my lifetime that it's easy to think, who is she anyway? Is there a there there? When I looked at the photos of myself over the years and matched them up with my husband at the time, I couldn't help but feeling that maybe it was true. Maybe I simply became whatever the man I am with wants me to be. Sex kitten, controversial activist, lady-like wife on the arm of a corporate mogul. Vanessa exposed one of my central issues. Was I just a chameleon? And if so, how is it that a seemingly strong woman could so thoroughly and repeatedly lose herself? So then she's like, okay, I got to figure out who the fuck I am. And that brings us to section three, beginning. So she starts to figure out who she is and she needs to do it with her husband. So she talks to him and says, I need our relationship to be different. And he says, no, it won't be. Out of love and respect for Ted and his children, I will not go into specifics about what was not working in our relationship. I mean, what do you mean? You just spent 200 pages talking about what was wrong in your relationship. Does she not think that him not listening to her ever was not the problem in their relationship? I guess not. I feel like all of these relationships, like we're just getting page after page after page of like her not being loved and respected. So anyway, the final breakup that they have is basically because Vanessa gets pregnant and Jane says, I really want to be with her for the birth of her child. and. Ted goes ballistic and it's like weeks of fighting. She wants to go be with her daughter for 10 days. And that's where he says, well, then this is not going to fucking work. 10 days she's not allowed to be away from her husband because he's going to get too abandoned and lonely feeling. So basically they have a year where they're like, well, let's see if we can make it work. And they can't. And he looks for her replacement. And then finally they get a divorce. And she says, truly the day she moved out, a new girl moved in. All my life, I had been a father's daughter trapped in a Greek drama like Athena who sprang fully formed from the head of her father, Zeus, disciplined, driven. Starting in childhood, I learned that love was earned through perfection. In adolescence, my feelings of imperfection centered on my physical being, and I abandoned my poor, loyal body and took up residence in my head. Whether you're a male or female, that split between body and heart and mind is a fatal one when it comes to being a fully realized person. She says this a few times throughout the book where she'll have these struggles and these fears within herself. And she'll read a book and realize many women have these fears. And she has so often in her life felt so alone in the problems and the struggles and the anxieties of living in this world as a woman. And as she steps outside of these relationships and experiences women elsewhere and reads and learns and connects with people, she comes to these realizations that lots of people feel this way. Yeah, so she really finds solace in all these women. She gets really into the vagina monologue. She becomes more fully embodied a feminist. She like starts to see the internalized sexism. Her daughter having a baby, I think, is a really transformative time for her because they're all living together in the house. After she breaks up with Ted, she has sold all of her properties. So she had nowhere to live. And she's just like in Atlanta in her daughter's guest room. She had gone from private jets to a closetless room. And she has this realization that she wants to begin again. 
I'm gratefully still a work in progress. I have part of one act to go in which to practice conscious living, be there as fully as I can for my children and grandchildren, and contribute in whatever way I can to healing the planet. If I can do these things, I'll be able to die gracefully and without regrets. Should we watch Book Club 1 and 2 for the Patreon this week? I want to watch everything. I mean, I could do like a Jane Fonda marathon, to be 80 honest. for Brady. I like really wanted to see that in theaters. Me too. <laughs> she talks about failures. She's regretted a lot, but she's tried a lot. She came out of retirement and did Monster in Law. The problem is this book came out 15 years ago, and she's like, I'm 70 now, and things are winding down. And I'm like, you have no idea. I, she might have a fourth act in her. Okay. Final thoughts on Jane? I loved this book, actually. I mean, I felt like it was a lot. It's definitely... It's dense. A hefty, hefty tome. I felt as soon as I finished it, oh, I wish I had had more time to digest it. I felt like from every angle, it was inspiring because she's accomplished so much. And you know, I love an older woman who believes that you have to fight for yourself at every year. I love an Elvira. I love a Cicely Tyson. I love somebody who says, I'm going to fight for my happiness and continue to grow. I agree with Catherine. I don't want to be a soggy bottom bitch. I know there's something so profound about a woman who could be so accomplished and so loud and brave in so many ways and then so broken in herself. Yeah. And I think that there's something very profound about the constant seeking of betterment and the spending decades in situations that make no sense only to walk out of them and say like, but now I see. I feel like I've been in a fairly Tom-ish two-year relationship. And looking back on it, I feel regret about having spent that much time there. But instead of that, I could be like, oh, but now I've learned more about myself. I think the way that she is like perpetually moving forward is very inspiring to me. Also, Mac has been requesting. This is shout out to Mac. You know who you are. Oh, my God. This is special treatment. If you guys want to get anything done on this podcast, you have to marry one of us. <laughs> Mac has been asking for an over a year for us to do a rating system for each book we review. And I actually think we always intend to, but then we forget by the time we get to the end of the book. But he texted me a couple reminders today. And me and Ashley have built out a system that we will be putting on our website coming soon. We'll have reviews of each book. Rating one is how fertile was this soil? That's how good was this book, but in worm talk, one to five, Ashley. Okay. How fertile was this soil? I would say 4.1 fertiles. I would give this, in terms of literally the word fertile, I would give this a 4.9. There's a lot fucking in here. But in terms of would I recommend this book overall, I give it, I agree with you, a four out of five. I was going to move down to 3.8 because I think there's like a density here that makes this book kind of scary and like kind of repels me a bit. Okay, the second rating system that we have is how much would you want to hang out with this memoirist on a scale of five worm teenies? <laughs> how many worm teenies would you want to share? I'm going five. I'm going five. Easy five warm teenies. I would love to sit down. Actually, one of the few times I've been jealous of Alex Cooper in my life is when she interviewed Jane Fonda and I then said, you know, better you than me because I think you're too stupid to be like intimidated. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, do you think she read this book in preparation for that interview? Because that's like the least she should have done. I don't think so. No. I didn't listen to it, but I guess I could listen to it. Maybe she did a great job. That feels unlikely. But I was <laughs> like, wow, that's a real get you got. Oh, and then my final thing I'd like to say is in what context would we recommend you read this book? This is not a beach read. We both do feel that if you wanted to keep this book by your nightstand or like, okay, this is going to sound crazy and disrespectful, but like even in a bathroom, this is a book that you could read 10 to 15 pages at a time over the course of a year. And there's so much in here. Yeah, I would say it's a book that you should read not on a vacation, not where you're sitting down and consuming lots of book at once. I think it's a book that you can and should put on your shelf and pick up every now and then. I will say it is a great book if you are 30 and having a midlife crisis because it really reminds you that 30, baby, you got a lot of time left. You could marry five more men if you wanted. 
This episode is coming out on my 32nd birthday, and I thought that that meant I was over the hill for sure. But now I realize I'm like barely a blip into my second act. Second act has just begun, baby. All right. We love you guys so much. And who do we love the most? Our five-star wormies. Thank you, Betchy, before breakfast. Let me tell you what. I would love to have a little chat, even if it is before breakfast. Thank you, W-Y-O, Jen. Oh, I appreciate you, my favorite Jen. Thank you, Heather Mango. You are the sweetest Heather in town. Thank you, Kai Harris. Your hair is stunning. Thank you, a hot dog named Mia. You are the cutest little babe in a bun. Thank you, JH7 at Gmail. I hope this snail mail of my appreciation reaches you. Thank you, C Mess the First. Listen, I don't care if you're neat or messy. I love you just the way you are. Thank you, Flora Freed. You are the most gorgeous field of flowers. Thank you, J Business 13. I am so happy you were able to get down to business. Thank you, Taylor Dorothy. There is no place like home because that's where your beautiful review is. Thank you to AB. W-I-I-W-I-W. I appreciate you more than you know. Thank you, guys. Love you.